Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening. Last time, we were discussing the Australian Strategic Policy Institute assessment the defence budget is actually going to be cut this financial year, next financial year, and possibly beyond that. Uh, The situation has become even more alarming, not because those facts have altered, but basically because everything has been confirmed by the Department of Defence. Speaking at Senate estimates a fortnight ago, Senator Simon Birmingham asked, when you strip that away, referring to exchange rate variations, isn't Aspie right that this year's defence budget provides one and a half billion less to defence over the next three years than the budget last March? No lesser figure than Stephen Groves, the Chief Financial Officer of Defence Replies. The calculations are correct if you're comparing it back to March 2022-2023. I would point out that there have been a number of reductions to the defence budget that occurred in the May budget, which were transfers to other agencies to support defence capabilities blah, 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 blah. Birmingham. Against that, over the forward estimates period, how much extra has defence received in terms of funding for additional capability? Mr Groves again. For additional capability, there has been no additional funding. I'd have to check back on the earlier budget, but in the May 2023-24 budget, there were certainly new priorities identified as part of the defence strategic review, which required a reprioritisation within defence. And then... We have Greg Moriarty, the secretary, adding, and Greg Moriarty actually can sound at times quite evil. I know that he's not, but the words can be quite chilling. Uh, He says to Senator Birmingham, if I could add, the government, in response to the DSR, has directed us to do some very rigorous reprioritization to establish a methodological and comprehensive process for assessment of current plans and activities to ensure alignment with the strategic intent. That will be considered in the context of the 2024 National Defence Strategy. Decisions will be made to cancel and reprioritise defence projects or activities that are no longer suited or are no longer of such priority to us as outlined in the review. That will involve reprioritising some planned investments while maintaining the overall level of defence funding. I think Mr. Miles and the Prime Minister have been very clear that defence needs to take a very rigorous look at its capability plans. We will be significantly reworking the integrated investment plan over the coming months to bring forward a completely reworked IIP in the context of the National Defence Strategy in early 2024. Now, leaving out all of the bureaucratic speak, What Moriarty is saying really should send a shiver through Australian industry, because as well as the cut in funding referred to, the government has added in a heap of extra things, such as the guided weapons enterprise, and the one potentially that's going to make my blood boil if work to Australian industry is lost, the $3 billion AUKUS down payment, which as far as I can tell, is a voluntary contribution to the defence industries of the United States and the UK to the tune of $2.5 billion to the former and $500 million to the latter, with no accountability and nothing tangible for Australia. 
And to describe the overall situation as simply as I can, the department's purchasing power has been eroded by inflation. So if I'm defence incarnate and on my salary, last year I bought two MBTs. Now, for this financial year, my salary has gone up by one extra dollar, but I'm expected to buy another two MBTs plus a machine gun and a rocket launcher. That's just not going to work because during the same period, the cost of living has gone up. Things like lower end of the range whiskey has increased by 20%. Interest rates have gone up. Cost of materials has gone up. All of these things. So something just has to give. Defence simply can't get everything that it wants with its current rate of spending. Now, of course, there have been some cuts in the Defence Strategic Review, such as to the number of infantry fighting vehicles and also the second tranche of self-propelled howitzers, but that doesn't look like it's going to be nearly enough. Now, we also have to consider that there's a review coming up of the entire Navy surface fleet, so maybe there are more cuts in line there. Another part in all of this that doesn't seem to be very well understood, the department actually has a perverse driver to spend more money overseas than it does to spend money in Australia. And that's because under funding arrangements, if there are any exchange rate variations, the Department of Finance compensates defence for that automatically. There's no ifs, no buts, it just happens. But the Department of Defence has to find within its own resources money to cope with things like inflation. That means for somebody who's inside the department, who's an accountant, whose only concern is balancing the books, whose only concern is the budget outcome, what that means is that they have a very, very strong incentive to order from overseas because they're compensated for that rather than do the work in Australia. And that means that the US foreign military sales system becomes even more attractive in times when the budget is under pressure than it normally is for all of the people who just want the easy way out, who simply want to buy FMS because that's a no-brainer. That's the sort of the IBM syndrome. No one has ever been criticised for an FMS purchase, but you can get into trouble to the extent that anyone gets into trouble for preferring an Australian solution. The only solution if defence and the government are able to get everything that they want, is to find more money for defence. I know that's always a big ask. The government has a struggle ahead of it, getting the budget back into surplus. We've got a huge amount of debt, all of those sorts of things. The purpose of these podcasts is not to sort out economic policy, but I think that the government needs to look at additional sources of revenue, such as looking at the energy sector and the huge amounts being exported out of Australia with massive profits being made by multinational companies. The only solution to the problem looks to be defence receiving more money. Without that, we're looking at a train smash and we're looking at a train smash that will disproportionately hurt Australian industry. Sometimes I wonder whether I'm actually going mad because this is happening against the backdrop where the government is warning about the risk of major conflict with China, where it's talking about 
prioritizing defense, where it's talking about the importance of national security, where it's been criticizing the coalition for their lack of progress on major projects while they they were in office. And now they're doing exactly the same thing. And what they're doing is making a rod for their own back on the topic of national security, as well as causing actual harm to industry and arguably Australia's national interest. And they just don't seem to have learnt the lesson that I thought would have sunk in for decades, that when this happened in 2012, they were beaten up so badly on matters of national security that they were running scared, that up until the last federal election, anything that came up to do with national security, they basically folded, went along with whatever the coalition was saying. They've put themselves, are putting themselves in precisely the same position and I cannot understand why. Yes, the budget's under pressure, but this is such an important issue. It's something that's been addressed by the Prime Minister downwards. National security, threat environment, blah, 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 blah. They are just going to have to find the funds from somewhere. And this may not have been the intention of Greg Moriarty when he used the form of words that he did, but what he's saying, what he's putting on the record is don't blame me. Don't blame the department. All of this is on the government. All that we, the department, are doing is we have been receiving the message that things need to be reprioritized, that cuts need to be made in certain areas, and we're going to implement them, and we're going to be tough-minded when it comes to doing that. I find it's a pretty scary sort of message. As a quick aside, when it comes to things like staff numbers, the situation for the department is even worse than budget cuts. And this is partly because Australia has pretty close to full employment and the private sector has a lot more flexibility over terms and conditions than the Commonwealth does. And if we just look at ADF numbers, which you'll recall are meant to be going up basically from where they are at the moment, 60,000 to 80,000 by, by 2040. In the last financial year, they went backwards. They're now actually 1,500 ADF personnel less than they were in uniform a year ago. So that situation is looking pretty bleak as well. I'll just conclude on the budget stuff by again returning to the Chief Financial Officer, Mr. Groves. As the Secretary said, we live within the funding envelope that we've been provided with by government. At times, that means that we have to look at what we can reduce from a capability perspective to deal with those one-off inflation impacts that we're seeing. And that's Mr. Groves for you, saying that we have to reduce capability to save money. Uh, he tries to sugarcoat it a little by saying those one-off inflation impacts. Well, I'm not aware that there are any one-off inflation impacts. I think that we're in a period of high inflation. The Reserve Bank has just raised interest rates again with a sign of more to come. So defence and the government aren't going to be out of the woods in terms of, of inflation for two or three years to come. And in the meantime, the defence budget is going to be hemorrhaging as a consequence. And uh, leaving the budget alone and moving to happier or at least different things, look, the life of journalists is tough. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of pressure. 
Uh, there's regular beatings from the owner. There's online abuse. There's all of that sort of stuff. Pretty thankless. But you do get to do interesting stuff. And last week, I was lucky enough to be invited to attend the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore, which is billed as Asia's most important uh, security forum. I'd argue because of the criticality of the region, it's one of the world's most important security forums, fora, and it was three days of very intense discussions. It was dominated by the China-US dynamic, which includes Korea or the Korean Peninsula, a fair bit about the Russian-Ukraine conflict, the situation in Myanmar, and AUKUS received a few mentions as well. It's pretty clear that the Chinese are irritated by AUKUS. Might be more than that. They might be deeply concerned. The overall conference was really, for me, characterized by the constant belligerence of the Chinese reps in pretty much all of the the sessions, not just the keynote speech or a keynote speech, I should say, by Defence Minister Lee. There are a lot of senior uniformed people there, and they were all phrasing themselves in kind of scary Marxist Cold War rhetoric about US striving for hegemony in the region and increasing tensions and kind of the, well, we all know who to blame for the current situation type of thing. China has refused officially many times to re-enter a process of dialogue with the US, and, and that should be a worry to all of us. And the reason that China gives is that they are not being treated with sufficient respect, which is kind of vague when you think about it. So an obvious solution, I think that some US diplomat is just going to have to eat humble pie, go to Beijing and say something like, you have the most amazing country on earth. President Xi's intellect shines with the force of 1,000 suns. You inspire us all. We want nothing but peace and harmony. Now, please, can you start talking to us again? And can we get some sort of security hotline set up so next time aircraft collide or ships run into each other in the South China Sea, it doesn't trigger a nuclear war? That's about the only suggestion that I can make to see how to move this forward, because at the moment, the two sides are quite far apart. The US is offering open dialogue. China is saying, no, thank you, not interested in talking. Very unusual for countries to have formal positions that are just so far apart. Anyway, Australia, or contributions made by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Defence Minister Richard Marles were, in my opinion, pretty good. They struck I thought quite a reasonable balance between making it clear to China that uh, China's threatening posture towards Taiwan, its conduct of um, militarizing the South China Sea, all of those things were very, very unwelcome. They shouldn't be happening. But at the same time, Australia preferred a process of discussion and dialogue and preferred to dial down the temperature. Well, all of that seemed to be pretty well received course, I don't know how it went over in China itself, but amongst the delegates that I was speaking to, they, they thought that the Australians set pretty much the right tone. And we have to remember, of course, that this is coming at a time when Australia is seeking to renegotiate the economic relationship with China to have some of the damaging tariffs removed. So it's pretty understandable that everyone was trying to be calm and reasonable. 
Look, it was also a wonderful forum for uh, networking, for bumping into people. I don't want to be name-dropping too much, but when you're in, in that sort of environment, you're next to people from a variety of different countries, the Dutch foreign minister, very senior UK military people, military people from Germany, Sweden, Japan, South Korea. I could go on. One of the encounters that I had was with the defence minister from Ukraine, Alexei Reznikov, who I think I described in writing as a, as a force of nature. Uh, he was a bit of a, a rock star there, being continually followed by camera crews. He's extremely articulate, and of course, he's doing a good job maintaining, perhaps even increasing, the support for Ukraine more broadly in the in the international community. The first thing that he said to me was when I'd identified myself was Hawkeye vehicles, please. And um, we know that that is something that's under consideration, and maybe some extra Bushmasters, maybe some other bits and pieces. The only comment that I can really make is that Australia has done a pretty good job to date, or at least started off doing a very good job, but that seems to have fallen away. I don't know why. My concern is that Ukraine needs stuff now. I mean, they really are pleading, not just with Australia, but with other countries as well, because as we know, fighting continues and they are gearing up for an offensive to regain land occupied by Russia and Australia is just proceeding slowly. It might be that our Prime Minister is waiting until a NATO meeting in Vilnius or Riga in July and some sort of photo op to make an announcement then. I'd prefer that it happen now, frankly. I don't think that these sorts of things should be delayed for PR purposes. I'll conclude by saying that the openness of defence officials from other countries was in stark contrast to the pattern that we now have in Australia. I've commented on this before over the last 20 years. The situation has deteriorated to a point that is beyond ridiculous, that defence suppresses so much information about anything that journalists are getting antagonised. My own writing is sometimes affected by this. I and my colleagues get so frustrated at not being able to get simple programmatic information out of defence that it's very easy to, to become very critical of them. This difference in cultures is going to be a massive problem with AUKUS because the US and the UK, they're quite open to talk about their defence projects and what they're doing and make their senior people available. Australia is the total opposite. How that is going to be managed, I cannot imagine. I think that we're just going to have to get back into a normal pattern where people in uniform communicate openly and honestly and effectively with the media and also with Australian defence industry. I'll have a lot more to say about this in coming episodes because I believe that it's a hugely important topic, not just for journalists, because our life is being made very difficult, but for Australian industry and for the general community. And I'll conclude on this note. The doctrine of deterrence only works when the other side, when the enemy has something to worry about, when they are concerned that you have enough capability that you can deal with with any threat that they might direct against you. 
Australia with this policy of secrecy is going in the opposite direction. We are creating the impression, I assume by accident, I can't imagine that there's a reason for it, we are creating the impression that we are a shambles and that everything is going badly. That just has to stop. It's not in anyone's interest for this pattern to continue any longer. I'll continue next week. Bye. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.